0: Well, good evening. I'll give you another crack at it. Good evening. evening. Much better. Well, this evening, as we have been in the book of Esther, you can turn to the book of Esther in chapter 5. And I want to remind you where we were at last week and just sort of jump in. Uh, Esther, we're going to see in this section, does approach King Xerxes without being summoned after three days of fasting. I'll remind you that Esther had agreed to appeal to Xerxes on behalf of the Jews. See, Esther had turned to God for deliverance from Haman's plot to destroy the Jewish people. She had instructed her adopted father, Mordecai, to gather the Jews in Susa and for them to fast for her for three days. She and her maids also abstained from food and drink for the last three days. So three days goes by. This was a three-day absolute fast for God to give her the spiritual strength to appear before Xerxes and even risk her life. So we talked a little bit about fasting last week, so we're not going to talk much about it this week, but it's important to note that fasting is, in fact, a spiritual discipline. And while it is a physical discipline, it's a spiritual discipline because it empowers us to deny ourselves and give our hearts completely to God. It's about commitment. And we talked again a lot about that last week. But Esther really trusted God. She trusted God that Xerxes would pardon her by extending the golden scepter to spare her life, for it was illegal against Persian law for her to approach the throne room of the king unsummoned. But she was willing to break Persian law and appear before King Xerxes without being summoned, on behalf of her people to, to plead their case, Persian law again condemned anyone that approached the king in the inner court uninvited and it sentenced them to death. So she truly is risking her life, risking her life and willing to perish if necessary. And so let's open in a word of prayer and we'll get started in chapter 5, verse 1. Oh, Lord Heavenly Father, as we now look at the life of Esther and how Esther lays it all on the line in commitment to you, willing to be sacrificed if that's what's necessary to bring about your will. We think of our Lord Jesus, who in the same way said he was willing to perish if necessary, and in fact it was for our salvation necessary for him to come and to die on a cross, but only to be raised from the dead with the promise that he's coming again. May that ring true in our hearts, and may we continue to honor you with our lives, knowing that you will empower us to stand for you as we seek you with all of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Esther appeared before Xerxes, just as she had promised Mordecai, and we read in verses 1 through 4. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. So all she's doing is making a request, really, for him to appear at a banquet she's going to give that day. She's not letting on any information, not, not communicating or divulging what her plan is and what she wants to share with him. It was polite to, if you are given an audience with the king, it was polite not to just blurt out your request, but to, to do something, to sort of ingratiate yourself to the king. And so certainly that's the case here. The, the king is going to attend a banquet, and and at that time he knows the request will come. Now, many times when we make requests of people, uh, we, if you're smart and tactful, and uh, diplomatic with people, you realize, you know, if you have to talk to somebody about something, you know, invite him to coffee, invite him to lunch, invite him to dinner, you know, it's not just you blurt, oh, can you do me a favor? It's a little rude, maybe not so much in our culture, but many times when we're approaching someone, we follow the niceties, you know, we, we follow the, the mannered way of doing things. Well, this was very true and still is in the Middle East. You don't just approach someone and say, oh, can I, can I ask a favor? You, you ask if you can ask for a favor at a later date. So that's basically what we see here. That's, that makes a lot of sense. So Esther stands before Xerxes in the inner court. She's dressed in her royal robes. And so this was a, a pleasing sight for the king, certainly. Uh, I want to remind you of a few things. There are a lot of symbols in this book. Some of them, I think, you know, you don't want to get into too much of a uh, contrivance or something where you're contriving the symbols, but there are things that I see here that help us to think of our relationship with our king, Jesus Christ. For example, she had received her royal robes from the king. Where do you think she got them from? The robes that she was wearing were robes that she received from the king. And as Christians, our royal robes are Christ's righteousness. We know this. And they've been given to us by our king. So like Esther, who's dressed in these royal robes, when we stand before God, we're dressed in his righteousness. For you had to be dressed in royal robes to approach the king. And we have to be dressed in Christ's righteousness in order to approach our king. Also, her robes were a sign of her position before the king as queen. That's a sign of her position, her right to really be in the court and, and in her position as queen. And of course, Christ's righteousness is the sign of our position before our king. The reason we are allowed to approach a throne of grace in heaven is because we have Christ's righteousness. It's indicative of our position in him. And also, she stood in the inner court of the palace requesting intimate access to the king and Brothers and sisters, we can stand in the courts of praise, requesting intimate access to our King. We have that right. In fact, we're invited into his presence. That's what we do in worship, as Danielle was leading us in worship, inviting us, the Holy Spirit, inviting us into the presence of of the throne room of God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, to worship. And what is our request? Well, we don't just blurt out requests. We worship him. And maybe our requests are for forgiveness. Maybe we're confessing our sins or just thanking God for his goodness. Or maybe we have things that are really on our hearts that we need to pour out before God, either for ourselves or on behalf of others. But I remember an acronym I learned many, many years ago in a discipleship class. It was the book of Acts, A-C-T-S. And it was adoration, which is to praise God, confession, which is to confess our sins, Thanksgiving, which is to thank God for both his forgiveness and his many blessings, and then supplication, which is the last letter, which has everything to do with us asking for our needs to be met or asking or interceding on behalf of others. So I like that little acronym. It helps me to remember what needs to come first. It's one of the reasons we start all of our services with praise and worship, because honestly, that is the appropriate way to approach the throne of grace. Amen. Well, we see here, Xerxes was, of course, pleased to see Esther, and he immediately extended that golden scepter. Even that scepter is a sign of Jesus Christ, a symbol of Jesus Christ, who is the scepter of Judah, talked about in the book of Genesis in chapter 49. He is the golden scepter, and the king was pleased. He was pleased with Esther, and he invited her by extending that scepter. And it's important to remember. We're not like bending God's arm behind uh, behind his back uh, and, and sort of like begging him to come into his presence. We are invited into the presence of God. And so this is what happens. The king actually invites her into the throne room, and our king, Jesus Christ, is pleased with us. He's invited us by sending the golden scepter of Judah himself as a man. So we've been invited. Never think of barging into the presence of God, because we have every right to be there in Jesus Christ. She also approached the king's throne with confidence. Confidence. Really, her confidence was in God, not in the king. Her confidence was in the fact that, that God would... Preserve her, their fasting, crying out to God, strengthened her, strengthened her faith, which is what fasting does, strengthened her faith to believe that if she entered into the throne room of God, the Lord would in fact spare her, that she would be given that opportunity to plead on behalf of her people. So she approached with confidence. And of course, we can approach our king's throne with confidence in Christ. The book of Hebrews talks about us entering boldly into the throne of grace, before the throne of grace when we need help in our time of need, that we can enter his presence boldly with confidence. It's sad when people think that they have to shy away from the presence of God. Not in Christ. In Christ, we can come before his throne of grace boldly. And so Esther did. And then Xerxes asked Esther what she wanted and assured her that he would grant her request. And he does that with some interesting language the the idiom even up to half the kingdom it's not that he actually expected her to say yeah i'll take uh, the eastern half of the kingdom it's an idiom it's an idiom that means whatever you desire that's within reason okay so i'll give you whatever you want within reason within reason i mean clearly you know there was a, a limit to what she could ask for but i think what he's saying is reasonably speaking there is no limit if you ask for something that's within my power to give to you and make sense and is reasonable, I'm certainly going to grant your request. And the king was certainly willing to do so. But our king, our Lord, is certainly willing to grant our requests. I think we forget this. That, you know, if, if we're asking according to his will, we'll receive that which we asked of him. The scriptures tell us if we ask in Jesus' name or ask according to his name, he will grant our requests according to his will. Kind of like even up to half the kingdom. Within reason, if you're asking for God to do something on your behalf or for you according to his will, he's he's not going to deny you. I think a lot of times we think we have to convince God to answer our prayers. Like we're going into a courtroom, we have to convince the judge to to give us what what we feel we deserve. That is not the relationship we have with God in prayer at all. Even up to half the kingdom means that God, as far as we're concerned, will grant our requests within reason according to his will. Notice the king did limit her request, though, because as her position as queen, half the kingdom was sort of an appropriate response. She is the queen after all. And our king only limits our requests to his will. And aren't you glad? And that's appropriate to our position in Jesus Christ, that God would only answer the prayers according to his will. You don't want God to answer your prayer if that prayer is not according to his will. Would you agree? You really don't. You really don't. You might think you do, but you actually don't. (laughs) So Esther invites Xerxes and Haman to come to a banquet that she had prepared for him. And so we pick it up in verses 5 through 8. We read, bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, which is another word for grace, and it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Again, very polite. A second banquet. A second banquet. It sort of implies, you know, what I'm going to ask, it's kind of a big ask. And one banquet's not going to get it done. So I'm going to invite you to a second banquet. It was actually not stalling. It might seem like, oh, she's afraid to say anything, and she's kind of stalling. No, not at all. It It was a means of communicating in a way that's appropriate and respectful to the king. So she invites him to a banquet. First she asks to enter his presence, to invite him to a banquet so that she can present her request. She then gets the king and Haman to the banquet. And rather than present her request, she requests a second banquet. And that is only more polite. It's not less polite. We may think of it as less polite. It's actually more polite. And so you see, this is sort of a detente. It's a protocol. And we're following along as we read. So Xerxes summoned Haman. They attend this first banquet together, and the king, of course, is pleased to spend time with her. He didn't have to be convinced. He was pleased to spend time with her. And, of course, our king, our God, is pleased to spend time with us. You need to know that God loves to spend time with us as we spend time with him. See, we need to change our perspective if we have a, uh, an inappropriate or incorrect understanding of the presence of God. If we think that we have to approach God with fear, not that we don't revere him, but if we think of God as, you know, we don't want to bother, like the Wizard of Oz, you know. You don't want to approach God because his scary face is going to come out and smoke and fire. If you think of God in that way, you'll never approach the throne of grace with the right heart. You have to know that he's your father. He's your Lord. He loves you. He sent Jesus to die for you. He wants you to enter his presence in prayer and in praise. And so don't avoid the presence of God, not at all. Well, Xerxes, again, he asks Esther what she wanted, assures her that he would grant her request. Because the king was more than willing to grant her request, remember, our king is more than willing to grant our request. You know, a couple of things I want to throw out there in terms of answers to prayer, petition, and intercession. Do you know that we already have all that God wants us to have and wants for us that we are willing to receive? That is, we already have all that God wants for us that we are willing to receive. What we are still lacking is that which God desires to give us, but we do not desire to have. See, that's the thing. If you don't have something that God wants for you, it's because you don't desire what God wants for you. God is not holding back on us. He wants us to ask according to his will. That pleases him. But God isn't going to force on you blessings or ministry opportunities that you don't want. God doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit doesn't force you to do something or even receive a blessing from him. When our will is aligned with his will, we will lack nothing that he wants to bless us with. But you think, but I wanted this. Well, maybe that's not God's will. Or maybe your heart isn't right. What does James say? You ask and you don't have because you ask amiss, that you might consume it upon your lust, that you might use it for your own purposes. Or you have not because you what? Ask not. So I want you to think about coming before God's throne with the right heart. What did Jesus do in the garden? Nevertheless, not my will, but nevertheless, your will be done. When you approach God like that, you can be assured of the fact that God's will will be done in your life. And that is a wonderful promise so, may we never receive what we desire if what we desire is contrary to God's will. Amen? It's hard to say, even harder to mean it, but it's still true. May we never receive what we desire if what we desire is contrary to God's will. I found this quote. It says that there is no liberty, no power, All is weariness to the flesh if the will is not truly subject and the supreme desire of the soul not expressed in the words, thy will be done. Very encouraging quote. Very important quote, really. So Esther requested that Xerxes and Haman come to another banquet the next day. And then she essentially says there's not going to be another banquet, but she promised to answer Xerxes' question and tell him what she wanted at the next banquet. And that builds a little suspense, but it's less about suspense and more about being polite, being appropriate in the way you ask a king for a favor. Okay? I mean, we do that today, you know? We do that today, if, if we're honest. Uh, you know, they, they, with a wrong heart, it might be called buttering somebody up, you know? Uh, but with the right heart, it's showing them deference, showing them honor and respect. Uh, and when you do that and you make a request, it's, it's, it's coupled with showing that person the respect that they really deserve. So think about it that way. Okay, so now we get into the next section here. In chapter nine, chapter 5, verse 9, we now switch gears. We, we, we go to Haman. All right. So Esther has done what she said she would do. She's approached the throne of, of, of the king. But what's going on with Haman? Remember, Haman was at the banquet. Well, then we read that Haman... He, he has already devised a plot to destroy all the Jews. Now he's going to devise a plot to hang Mordecai. Before we get into that, let me remind you, Xerxes had elevated Haman, son, of Hamadeth of Agagite, to a very high position. He had been given a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles in the Persian court. We saw this in chapter 3. Xerxes had commanded that all the royal officials at of the king's gate kneel down and honor Haman and all the officials obeyed this command. But Mordecai would not honor Haman. We talked about this in a previous study. So the officials, they pressure Mordecai to comply, but he refuses to obey the king's command. He won't bow down to an Agagite who is a Amalekite. He won't bow down to this man. And the officials informed Haman of Mordecai's unwillingness to honor him. So this enraged this egomaniac Haman, and Mordecai's refusal to kneel down or honor him sort of gets this guy all riled up to the point that he looked for a way to destroy Mordecai and all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And then what he did, and we read about this in chapter 3 as well, he issued an edict to destroy the Jews throughout Persia. This is like genocidal ambition, kill all the Jews. Because, of course, the Jews were commanded by God to kill all the Amalekites. He decides to respond by killing all the Jews. He had the officials cast the lot, or the poor, to randomly select a date. He received Xerxes' approval to destroy the Jews, although he didn't give them all the information. And then he published the edict to destroy the Jews throughout Persia on a day that they selected, which was the 13th of the, well, the day that they did this was the 13th of the first month of Nisan. But this is going to be about 11 months later that they're going to enforce this edict. So, we pick it up in verse 9. Haman's once again enraged by Mordecai's refusal to rise or show fear in his presence. Look at verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. So, He, he, as good as things are in his life, this one thing just eats at him. This one man, this one individual won't show him any deference or any honor or respect. Because of that, he's filled with rage. I want you to think about that. Someone may cut you off in traffic and you may be filled with rage. But you don't even know that person, right? You just know that what they did annoyed you. Sometimes people will say things and I have to tell you... The older I get, and I think training has a lot to do with this, I, you have to just let things go. I've been able to let more go in my life the older I get, but you know, someone steps on your foot, and I'm, I'm not speaking literally, like metaphorically, they, they do something, they, they, they even, maybe even go out of their way to harm you or hurt you or to get you in trouble, And there's an instantaneous reaction that most of us have, men certainly, women as well. We get angry. We're filled with rage. And our next action almost certainly is going to harm us more than it's going to harm whoever we take it out on, right? So it's important for our reaction to be measured. We always say, what would Jesus do? Like To respond the way Christ would respond to someone. They're nailing his hands and his feet to the cross putting him up on a cross. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That heart is not something you're just going to naturally have. It's got to be supernatural. It's got to be Christ's character imputed to you, given to you through, through prayer and through seeking God and asking God in the spirit to, to, to make you more like him. Look, if you can respond to wicked, evil people by turning the other cheek and not engaging and not being given over to your rage... You look in the mirror and you'll see a little bit more of Jesus there than you did before that. I know this is difficult. I know this is hard. But there's simply no way to justify responding to evil in kind. Jesus made it abundantly clear we're to love our enemies. That doesn't mean you have to like them. It's a, You show them the love of God and you treat them respectfully even though they don't treat you respectfully. This has become very hard in recent times because a lot of times we're People are saying all manner of evil against us the way that Jesus said they would, Uh, calling us all types of names and haters and saying things about us that that isn't true. And I think it's just best if we walk away or just don't engage. And uh, it's hard. It's very difficult. And yet, Haman was the kind of person, because he was evil and wicked, he didn't typically walk away. So what is this all about? Why is he restraining himself at all? Well, for one reason, I mean, you have to know that he's already made plans to destroy all the people, all the Jews. But it's also sort of inappropriate for someone of high rank to respond in kind. It would lower him. And that's pretty true of us, too. When we respond in kind to someone who's doing something disrespectful to us, when we respond in kind, we're lowering ourselves. And especially a person of nobility, uh, you, you, you learn when you're in a position of uh, nobility or power to let that stuff sort of roll off of you. and not, You don't really let it stick. You have to because it's inappropriate, unbecoming. That's the word I'm looking for. It's unbecoming of a person of stature and respect to respond in kind. So he wants to kill this guy, but he knows he'll only lower himself and his position if he does. So he walks away. But as we've seen here, Haman was enraged because he refused Mordecai refused to rise and show fear in his presence. He was extremely pleased with himself after attending Esther's banquet with Xerxes that made him feel good about himself, but became enraged when Mordecai refused to kneel down or honor him. These are the things he should have just let go, but he couldn't. Now Mordecai himself was most likely one of the royal officials that served in the king's palace. Of course, he had removed himself from his position in the king's court after Haman's edict was issued. They went and they fasted. So for the last three days, he hasn't been there. But now he would have returned to the king's gate now that the three-day fast was completed. So here he is. Here comes Haman, and he still won't bow. He still won't bow. Now, I could say good things about that. I could say that, you know, Mordecai stuck to his guns. I could say that Mordecai was um, unwilling to bow to a wicked man. But I could also say that Mordecai was also a very stubborn individual. And Mordecai, remember, all of this trouble kind of started because he wouldn't bow to Haman. I'm not going to sit here and say he should or shouldn't have bowed. But he is working in the palace, and it's expected of him to do so. But he refuses to do so. So I think there might have been a little bit of a lack of humility on the part of Mordecai as well. But I'll leave it at that. Men you know, are men, You know, feet of clay, so to speak. You know, we all... We all have our faults and our failures. Mordecai is certainly not a hero in this book. I keep that in mind. We've talked a lot about that. He's kind of a conniving politician, if you ask me. But Haman restrained himself from reacting to Mordecai, and he goes home. And here's what happens when he gets home, verses 11 and 12. So in verse 11, we read, actually, first part of uh, Second part, excuse me, of of verse 10. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth. Don't you love that when people boast about their vast wealth? You know something? When people talk like that, I want to vomit. I just, I don't think it's a bad thing that people are wealthy or successful. But there's nothing more unbecoming than someone talking about it, right? It's almost like, it's just inappropriate. just kind of icky. Well, Haman boasted them to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all. So he had the warm-up was just to talk about his vast wealth and all of these things he has. And now he has something else to drop on them. Haman added, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. So you see... This, was, this guy is one of those guys that just can't wait to tell you how good he's doing, how well he is, how rich he is, how blessed he is. You know, I would suggest, and again, I think this is a, a, a good, godly character. You get a promotion, you get a raise, things go well with you, uh, you make some money, things, you know, things are going okay. You probably want to be discreet. You know what that word means? You don't need to flash, you know, you take out your wad of cash and you start counting off hundreds as you pay the bill at the diner in front of everybody. You know, the people that do that, you know that, right? I'm sure you know that. The people that do that, they do that for a reason. They want everyone to know how wealthy they are. I have to be honest, there's a few people that I, you know, occasionally see. And I want to like them. I really do. I try. But when they start bragging about all of these things, especially in ministry, I just want to take a fork and stab myself (laughs) just so I have an excuse to leave the room. Notice I I didn't say stab him or them. It's just like I'm I'm sitting there like, do I really have to sit here and listen to this soliloquy of how great you are? I don't know about you, but I find it so unbecoming, you know. And and I've never been super, super comfortable with, with people, you know lauding praise on me but i've learned over the years if if someone compliments you they encourage you you very respectfully and politely thank them and you move on you don't you don't do the false humility thing oh no 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 i don't want to talk about how great i am Uh, why don't you talk about how great i am now you don't want to like that false humility you just want to be gracious when someone comes to you and say oh pastor that sermon really touched praise god to god be the glory you know, oh, pastor, that, you know, that, this, that, the other thing. They say to the worship leader, oh, that song was so fantastic. Oh, isn't God good? You just, just take that and point it right back at Jesus. That's where it belongs anyway. You know that. Your gifts, your talents, your abilities, God gave them to you. And if you're using, for, using them for his glory, then give the glory to God. Don't take any of that glory. Don't, God will not share his glory with another, the scripture says. So I suggest you don't share any glory. When God blesses you, praise God. Someone comes to you and says, I heard you got promoted. Congratulations. You just say, you know, what a blessing. I'm so grateful to God that he gave me the opportunity. Learn to be humble and meek. Don't brag. Don't boast. For, for example, love does not boast. The scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul writes, love does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. Okay, it's not those things. So I think that's a a good thing to take home maybe this week is we have opportunity. Let's learn to truly act humbly, but also to be humble and to not brag or boast about our accomplishments or our things we've received in the way of uh, accolades. Let's, let's not do that. But, of course, he did. He boasted about his great success. Oh, his vast wealth his many sons, which was a sign of blessing, his many honors and his elevated position in the Persian court, and his attendance at Esther's banquet with Xerxes that day. Oh, he couldn't wait to tell everybody how fortunate he was. And even his invitation to accompany Xerxes to Esther's banquet the next day. I'm going to the next banquet. Wow. Well, this is what we do now. While he had this evil heart, this boastful heart, he also had a wicked and hateful obsession with killing the Jews, and Mordecai in particular. Look at verses 13 and 14. We read, but all this, he write, uh, the book has it written here, but it's actually a quote from, from Haman. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. All of that, all that good stuff going on in his life that he couldn't wait to brag about, and yet there's this one thing that's just like a thorn in his side. He just, just can't get over the fact that this one insignificant individual won't bow to me. What does that tell you? This guy's an egomaniac. This guy's a narcissist. This guy's a textbook jerk. Can I say it that way? And, and you know, there are people, and, and you'll find this, especially if you work in the corporate world, And I'm not saying this as some great revelation. Anyone here that works in an office that's worked for a big company knows this is like there's a thousand Heymans in any office where you work. I remember some bosses were great. They'd invite you in their office. You know, they'd talk to you like a normal person. And then others you'd get on the elevator with and they'd even look at you and you'd say good morning and they wouldn't respond. As if to say, I don't need to say good morning to you. I'm your boss. I remember seeing that for 20 years I saw... One type of individual and then another type of individual. And I'll tell you what, everyone really despised the individuals that treated them like garbage. And they loved the bosses and the managers that treated them like human beings. You know, I'll tell you what, learn to treat others with respect and you'll receive respect in return. Well, no matter what your position is, even if you're the president of the United States, it doesn't matter what your position is, you should treat everyone with with respect. That should be clear by now. So, this is what we see. Verse 14, after we've read verse 13. Verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, and I wonder, what do you think their reaction was when this guy used to come home and brag? I, you know, people, are, they call them sycophants. There's another word for it that's inappropriate to use in a Bible study. But, you know... People who just always tell everybody what they want to hear, and they're kind of like, they just sort of show up, and they're always there, part of the entourage, so to speak. And You know, I wonder, because a lot of times, people are just hanging around somebody like this for what they can get from them. But deep down inside, they don't really like them. They just kind of say the right things. You know what I'm talking about? So his wife, Suresh, and all of his friends said to him, Oh, have a gallows built 75 feet high and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it and then go with the king to, to the dinner and be happy. And this suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. Yeah, you know, I wonder about that suggestion. I wonder if it was said tongue-in-cheek. But he loved the idea. He thought it was a great idea. And isn't it interesting? We'll see next week. That's his undoing. That he'll do anything that brings attention to himself. And ultimately, this is what, <laughs> this is what does him in. Well, anyway, we get to these last two verses and we realize Haman hated the Jews. He's obsessed with the thought of killing Mordecai. He found no satisfaction in his great success as long as Mordecai was still alive. His dissatisfaction with one person robs him of all the other blessings in his life. Are you grinding your teeth over one thing in your life? You know, do you have an axe to grind over one thing? And it bothers you so much that you can't see or be grateful for all the other blessings in your life just because one thing, one person, oh, my father didn't talk to me, he didn't, he didn't love me, my mother abandoned me. Those are serious hurts. I, I understand that. But let me ask you a question. You're going to let one thing that happened in your life destroy your life? Or are you going to get over it? Oh, pastor, you can't say that. That's not sympathetic. All right, I'll say it nicely. Please get over it. Too many people are encouraged to keep holding on to nonsense. Just let it go. Do I have to sing the song from Frozen? Just let it go. There's so many things we hold on to in life and we just need to let them go. Okay, I get it. You didn't have the upbringing you want. You didn't get to go to the school you wanted to go to. Your mom wasn't nice to you. Your brothers picked on you. You were bullied in high school. These aren't nice things. I'm not minimizing them, but you can't go back and change it. So why don't you look at the rest of your life and all the things that God is doing and has done, and why don't you focus in on those and stop grinding your axe over nothing because you can't do anything about it, but you can let it poison the rest of your life if you keep, you know, just sort of picking at it and just just let it go. We'll leave it at that. I don't want to get sued by Disney for another unauthorized performance. His dissatisfaction with one person robs him of all these other blessings. And instead of being filled by his success, and he had so much success, he's emptied by his lack of accomplishment. One thing, just one thing. One guy won't bow. Instead of seeking to help others, he worked diligently to destroy those that would stand in his way. And this is what makes for an evil heart. He just couldn't wait until the 12th month of Adar, which was still 11 months away, to destroy the Jews. So his wife, Zeresh, and his friends, and I'm sure they were tired of hearing him brag and complain about this stupid thing, they suggested that he ask Xerxes to have Mordecai killed. They gave him advice that appealed to his pride. And if you're proud, you'll take that advice. They suggested that he build a gallows 75 feet high to hang Mordecai on. Just to let you know, we had to change some of the light bulbs in here, LEDs, we changed them over to LEDs. And at one point we had to get up onto one of those uh, ceiling fans to untangle some balloons that got on there. Fortunately, uh, Manny Rosario, who's good at that kind of thing, climbed the ladder because I got about halfway up and said, yeah, this isn't a good idea. It's about 40 feet, so double that, 75 feet high, roughly, almost. I wouldn't have even wanted to climb up there, right? I mean, I got about halfway up the ladder trying to change those lights up there, and I said, nope, I'm done. My legs started to shake uncontrollably, and I said, that's it. I'm not, you know, am I afraid of heights? No, I'm afraid of falling. So they suggested that he, he build a gallows 75 feet high to hang Mordecai on. Now, they suggested that he hang Mordecai before... Accompanying Xerxes to Esther's banquet. They want <laughs> they they want him to stop complaining about this guy Mordecai. That's their motivation. But God is setting the whole thing up. He's setting the whole thing up. And he was delighted with their suggestion. So he had the 75-foot-high gallows built to hang Mordecai. By the way, these gallows are incredibly high, and they're designed just to bring attention. Do you understand? just to bring attention to, to, to this man who defied Haman and, and to Haman himself. And so everyone in Susa knew that he had built these imposing gallows for Mordecai, the one man he despised. And that will be his undoing. The fact that he just couldn't let it go. I have seen people refuse to let go of a hurt or a slight or an insult, and they've allowed that festering wound to destroy their whole life. How many times do you see people, they go to jail for manslaughter or second-degree murder because they just couldn't let it go? We have people in the streets of major cities just you know, getting into an argument, pulling out a gun and shooting somebody, or a knife, or, or just swinging at people. I mean, some people are, have legitimate mental issues, but other people just can't control their anger. We live in a world of people who can't control their rage, and I just have to say, we should not be among them. I'm not saying you can't defend yourself from somebody trying to harm you, but what I am saying is you shouldn't be the one trying to harm anyone. So what we see in this study is that God is setting the stage. Esther is doing what God has told her to do. And as the banquets are being set up, and Haman and Xerxes are attending these banquets, about to attend the second one, Haman, he's just not controlling his rage. And so he goes ahead and he starts a campaign to hang Mordecai even 11 months before all the Jews are going to be put to death. And as we'll see next week, it will be his undoing. And it will be our undoing as well if we don't learn to control our anger. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word and the encouragement in your word. May we become more like you, Jesus. You didn't trade insult for insult. You submitted yourself to your Father, to him who judges righteously. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a wonderful example to follow and that the example of kindness and compassion and forgiveness and love that you have given to us is the one that you also empower us by your spirit to follow. May we let go of all the hurts and the pain. May we learn to forgive others, even if they're not asking for forgiveness. May we, like you, say, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And maybe we can't restore the relationship, and, and, and maybe we, can, we can't experience trust again with that person, but at least we can let go of the hurt and the pain. Lord, may we be able to do that. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.